This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Today we're going to talk about how the Pharisees denounced Jesus and Jesus denounced the Pharisees. It's Jesus's first extended criticism of the Pharisees. An even longer one will come later. But it's a great summary of what religion is for and what it isn't good for. To fill in the story from last time, Mark, in his characteristic way, has Jesus on a sprint getting things done. Here's how he ended the walking on water story. We read Matthew's version last time. This is how Mark ends his version. Mark chapter 6, verse 49 is where this one begins. They saw him walking on the sea, and they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Have no fear. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astonished. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about the whole neighborhood and began to bring sick people on their pallets to any place where they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or country, they laid the sick in the marketplace and besought him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many touched it were made well. Well, that's the end of the Mark continuation from last week. It's significant, though, that Mark says they did not understand about the loaves and were utterly astounded by what Jesus was doing. They couldn't process what had happened, why Jesus was telling them that they had to eat his flesh and drink his blood in John uh, when eating blood was illegal in Jewish food laws. But John, you remember, and we read this part, ratchets up the problem even more than Mark. He doesn't just say they didn't understand about the loaves. He has Judas surface as a rejecter of Jesus at exactly the moment that Jesus pronounces his teaching about the Eucharist. John wrote in John chapter 6, verse 66 and following. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Jesus said to the twelve, Will you also go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? and one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was to betray him." End quote. So Judas seems to start rejecting Jesus precisely over the Eucharist. So what follows in the Gospels, what follows this incident of the miracle of the loaves and the walking on water, is in part Jesus trying to help people understand the miracle of the loaves the Eucharist. So what follows in the Gospels after the miracle of the loaves and the walking on water is Jesus trying to help people 
understand about the loaves, as Mark put it, understand about the Eucharist. So the Eucharist was in the background when we heard the parable of the sower and when John called Jesus the Lamb of God. And it'll be in the background again when we talk about the transfiguration and the new exodus. And it'll be in the background when Jesus compares himself to a grain of wheat that must die. But it's in the background right here where he talks to the Pharisees about what makes somebody unclean, whether it's something you put in your mouth or whether the something that comes from your heart. So we'll pick up at the very beginning of Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples were eating with unclean hands, that is, without washing them. The Pharisees, and indeed all the Jewish people, don't eat unless they wash their hands properly, following the tradition of their elders. They don't eat anything from the marketplace unless they dip it in water. They also observe many other traditions, such as the proper washing of washing cups, jars, brass pots, and dinner tables. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? Jesus told them, quote, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. And he told them, You have such a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your own tradition. Because Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever curses his father or mother must certainly be put to death. But you say, If anyone tells his mother or father, Whatever support you might have received from me is korban, that is, offered to God, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You are destroying the word of God through your traditions that you have handed down. And you do many other things like that. Then he called to the crowd and told them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from the outside can make him unclean. It's what comes out of a person that makes a person unclean. If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. When he had left the crowd and gone home, his disciples began asking him about the parable. He asked them, Are you so ignorant? Don't you know that nothing that goes into a person from the outside can make him unclean, since it enters not the heart but the stomach and passes out into the latrine? Thus he declared all foods clean. Then he continued, It's what comes out of a person that makes a person unclean, because it's from within, from the human heart, that evil thoughts come, as well as sexual immorality, stealing, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, cheating, shameless lust, envy, slander, arrogance, and foolishness. All these things come from inside and make a person unclean. End quote. So we've talked about food for the last several weeks and we're still on food. All of these regulations about ritual purity have grown up and were very important to the Jewish people. How important? In the second book of Maccabees, there's a sad and inspiring tale of a mother who watches her seven sons killed for refusing to eat pork. So are we now to believe that they wasted their final witness because that food was already clean? No, that's not what's happening here. Jesus says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
What Isaiah actually said was, these people draw near to me, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus drops the they draw near to me, partly because he is seeing this from God's point of view, from his own point of view, because he is God. So he just says, these people honor me with their lips, because he doesn't see them drawing near to him at all. And he'll later say, nothing that goes into a person from the outside can make him unclean. And Mark, who is Peter's secretary, adds, thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus is indeed saying here that the emphasis on ritual purity versus interior virtue needs to change, but he is also changing the rules about what you can eat and what you can't eat. In fact, ritual purity was a big deal, and rightly so. The Maccabees didn't die for nothing. Pope Benedict XVI points out that major religions have all had rules about ritual purity because these rules are God's way of reinforcing his greatness and his otherness. It's like dressing up for an honored guest. You do it as a way to show your respect for them, and it helps teach others who you respect and who you don't respect by how you dress. However, once you become dictatorial about who has to wear what and when, once the dress stops being a sign of respect and starts being a way to exclude others or to put others down, it starts to be a problem. That's what Jesus is warning about here. You disregard God's commandment, but cling to human tradition, Jesus tells the Pharisees in Sunday's Gospel. For the Pharisees, it was the blessing of cups, jugs, kettles, and beds that was the problem. Religious people today are just as prone to embrace the tokens of holiness rather than the genuine article. Catholics might have all the right medals on our scapulars, but be missing the key virtues from our lives. Or we could have all the right stickers on our laptop while using our laptop to go to all the wrong sites. But it isn't just the externals that can eclipse a real relationship with God. All religion carries the risk of being misused. We can treat the Mass as a time to relax and plan our week, tuning out the readings, homilies, and prayers. We can even treat confession as a way to ease our conscience while not really changing our lives. This happens when what's in our heart doesn't match what's on our lips. In addition to identifying the Jews as honoring me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, Jesus also helpfully lists the evil that comes from within people, from their hearts. The whole list applies to religious people. After all, he's listing them for the Pharisees or in response to the Pharisees, but some of them might be particularly convicting. For instance, we are guilty of evil thoughts whenever we look at someone and decide that they aren't as good as us, reducing them to a political category or a body type or a style or a moral history that we judge is not due our full respect. Another is envy, which we are guilty of whenever we are anxious to make someone else look worse or less holy so that we can look better or more holy. We're guilty of blasphemy, according to the Catechism, whenever in, quote, speech or thought or action, we show contempt for God or the church or persons or things dedicated to God, end quote. So careless social media sharing can easily lead us to become guilty in this way. All these evils come from within and they defile, warns Jesus. St. James in his letter has kind of the right response to all this. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, 
And he adds, quote, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained by the world, end quote. So there's two parts to that admonition. First, we need to actually serve the people God has placed in our power who need our help. We religious people are great admirers of divine mercy, but sometimes it's human mercy that a situation really needs, our direct human help. But the second part of that admonition is about keeping ourselves unstained by the world. So he's actually saying to keep yourself clean from the world. How does the world stain us? It stains our minds if we only expose ourselves to the articles, shows, music, and books that think like the world does. Without solid spiritual reading and shows and even music, it's hard to stay in touch with God's way of thinking. But the world also stains us if we spend all of our time there. Just as two spouses who live hundreds of miles apart are in danger of losing touch, if we spend all of our time 100 miles apart from Jesus Christ and never meet him in prayer, then we can lose touch too. Jesus is also warning us about the commandments God has given us. If you look at the list of sins he warns about, they correspond with the Ten Commandments roughly. And Moses, when he gave the Jews the Ten Commandments, said, What great nation has statutes and decrees that are as just as this whole law which I am setting before you today? But then the Jewish people, when they were living in pagan lands, felt the need to make up new rules to separate themselves from the people they were with. That's a good instinct to separate themselves a little bit, but they went too far. We often talk about people who are more Catholic than the Pope. It's impossible to be more Catholic than the Pope, but they were attempting to be more Jewish than Moses, and it's impossible to be more Jewish than Moses. In fact, it's our decision to create new levels of strictness that God did not give us that causes a lot of our problems. In the Garden of Eden, Eve fell first because she added to God's law. In her conversation with Satan, with the snake, she claimed that God was even harsher than he is. She said she couldn't eat of the forbidden fruit or even touch it. And that exaggeration, he never said anything about touching it, ended up leading her to reject God's law altogether. We religious people do this all the time. We add commandments to what is given. And when we fail to live up to our own personal commandments, we give up altogether. The church gives clear guidance as to what morality requires. It also promotes several practices that are worthy and wonderful, but are not required. Things like the daily rosary or novenas or devotions or Eucharistic hours or extra fasting, etc. But for some people, the devotional life becomes this grind of doing all these non-essential things and they get overwhelmed and they end up stopping even the essential things because they're just too burnt out. Today's gospel gives us just such an example of what happens when the motivation behind a moral code becomes self-centered instead of community-centered or God-centered. The Pharisees have created lots of permutations of the law, lists of what makes one unclean, complicated rituals, rules that are about the individual's membership in the community. Jesus informs them, you disregard God's commandment, but cling to human tradition. 
And lo and behold, the Pharisees don't have what Moses used to motivate them. They aren't living as fully as they could. They don't have possession of the Holy Land, and other nations are not particularly impressed with them anymore. So it's important for us to know what real religion is and where we have gone too far, gone past real religion. To start with, we have to defend the proposition that there should be any religion at all. I recently saw a tweet that said, hate religion, love Jesus, is a heresy looking for a name. That's true. I think that's a heresy looking for a name. But rejecting religion is more popular than ever right now. You can see younger generations' discomfort with religion in declining church attendance and the rise of the nuns, but the Christian kind is common also. The Christian singer, Lauren Daigle, had a 2018 album called Losing My Religion, where she tells God, I'm losing my religion to find you. The song is kind of a soft focus version of Jeffrey Bethke's hard-hitting rap that went viral maybe 10 years ago. Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. That one was echoed by a Newsweek cover at the time that showed a hipster Jesus accompanied by the headline, Forget the Church, Follow Jesus. And the thought it expressed just keeps returning. That somehow religion puts Jesus in a box and makes him stuffy and unapproachable. I think it's completely understandable that people have this issue and have this problem. This is part of the appeal of the excellent TV show, The Chosen. There's a feeling of sweet freedom watching this band of sisters and brothers camping out and laughing with the personable but serious God-man, Jesus. But when you hold up that personable, palsy, intimate relationship with Jesus against the troubles we've seen in the church recently, it can make going to church look overstuffed, overblown, unattractive. But I think that's a false dichotomy. Maybe a good way to look at it is to look at Jefferson Bethke's video, Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus, because the video is kind of a rap or a poem that very succinctly sums up exactly the problem we're talking about. This tendency to reject religion and think that you're doing what Jesus wants. Bethke in the poem asks, what if I told you that Jesus came to abolish religion? Well, I'd tell you that in Matthew 5, 17, he says, do you think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets? I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Or in Matthew 16, as we'll see, he tells Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, etc." Or in John 20, as we'll see, Jesus tells his apostles, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not. Or in Matthew 18, he'll tell his apostles, if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan. So if you told me that Jesus came to abolish religion, I'd tell you that Jesus himself says the opposite. Bethke asks, I mean, if religion is so great, why has it started so many wars? And the first answer I think would be that opponents of religion have killed way more people in one century the 20th century, than all the religious killings of two millennia combined. But I think there's a failure in logic here also. 
He could just as easily say, if feeding your children is so great, why has it started so many wars? Or if defending your village against marauding barbarian rapists is so great, how come it has started so many wars? What you have to do is specify the wars and the motivations involved in order for us to have a discussion about religious wars. Anyway, he adds, why does religion build huge churches but fails to feed the poor? Again, you've got to be very careful with stuff like that because you could just as easily ask, why did the baby Jesus receive ornate gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh instead of feeding the poor? Or why was Jesus presented in the temple if the money for the temple should have been used to serve the poor? Or when he was lost, why did his parents find him in the temple preaching instead of serving the poor? Or why did he angrily drive the money changers out of his temple saying, zeal for my father's house will consume me instead of angrily driving the tax collectors to serve the poor saying, zeal for the poor will consume me. And you have to realize that if you put this question to Jesus, he'll give the same answer he gives when a woman pours costly perfume over his feet. The apostles say, why this waste? It could have been sold for so much and the money given to the poor. Jesus answered, the poor you always have with you, but me you do not have always with you. Clearly, Jesus sees honoring him through ritual worship, through costly worship, as something that we should be doing. And you know, the question could just as easily be asked to Jefferson Bethke, who spent money creating an expensively produced YouTube video, why wasn't this money spent on the poor instead of your video? And the answer is because it's important to tell people about Jesus Christ. It's important to show him public respect. It's important to show him the honor due him by dressing up, by dressing him up, by dressing his surroundings up. And in fact, that's one thing that religion does that we absolutely needed to do. It shows the proper respect. It also provides the proper accountability. I'll never forget when I was over in England and I heard a British priest who was actually called Canon, uh, not Father, uh, talk about how necessary religion was to worship. He recalled a conversation he had with a man who said he could praise and worship God much better in nature than in a church. The Canon said, perhaps you can, but do you? Yeah, you can worship God just as well in nature as in the church. But without the rules of religion telling you that you have to go, without the community there expecting you to be there, without your family needing to go, without a particular appointment, with a particular people in a particular place to worship in a particular way, it probably doesn't happen. On our own, we easily abandon our ideals and serve ourselves despite ourselves. Organizing with others keeps us honest. In fact, we have a strong religious impulse, whether we like it or not. Chesterton said, those who reject God are capable of believing in anything, and new generations of people are busy proving him right. Why are millennials so into astrology, as The Atlantic recently asked? Or MTV reported that a third of Gen Z chooses who to date based on astrology. So astrology, which is an ancient, archaic, inconsistent, an even dangerous set of lies is a 21st century trend. Because people are religious, they can't help it. Many religions form out of our best impulses. 
Courts in Great Britain defined veganism as a philosophical belief system with much in common with religion, and they have a point. The vegan saying everything you eat is a moral choice sounds like Leviticus. The Catechism warns that even exercise can become a dangerous cult of the body if we put the wrong kind of emphasis on it. I like that cult of the body. So I think, in fact, that some of the religions we start for ourselves are much harsher than the Catholic faith. In fact, I think Jesus's words criticizing the Pharisee could just as easily be pointed toward the world today. I once had a conversation with my daughter about this and wrote down a kind of account of it, maybe a little exaggerated. But she said, geesh, I can't eat my ham sandwich. I forgot it's Friday, which, by the way, is totally stupid. Lots of Catholic families are eating hamburgers right now, but not us. I said, yeah, that's fine. They must be doing an alternative sacrifice, but we don't because we never quite find one when we try. And actually, this Friday is a solemnity, so meat is fine. She said, oh my gosh, Dad, that we can randomly have meat on this particular Friday is even more stupid. Catholics have so many arbitrary rules. So she thought she had caught me being just like the Pharisees. I said, no, it's not arbitrary. It's from love. We love Jesus, so we remember his death on Friday by offering a sacrifice or we celebrate with him if it's a solemnity. She said, I'm sure he's really impressed. I said, it's not about impressing Jesus. It's about solidarity with him. Like when people shave their heads when their sister is getting chemotherapy. Or like when we all gave up treats because grandma couldn't eat anything except through a feeding tube. It's a sign of love. She said, okay, but it's stupid to make it a random arbitrary rule. When we die, I'm sure Jesus isn't going to ask everyone if they sacrificed meat on Friday and send them to hell if they didn't. I said, no, it doesn't work that way. No one would punish you if you didn't shave your head for your sister with leukemia or if you didn't give up candy for grandma. But your relationship with them would be different and weaker without that solidarity. When you die, you want to run to Jesus, whom you have spent a lifetime loving, and you want him to open his arms because he recognizes you. Heaven is the flowering of a relationship that starts here. It's not the passing of a legalistic exam. She said, then why all the arbitrary rules? Why the Ten Commandments? I said, the Ten Commandments aren't arbitrary. They're a great ethical code for all humanity, according to Pope Benedict XVI, is who I was quoting. Uh, but they're principles of natural law that match the criteria of every human person's right conscience. So these are the kinds of rules that Jesus promotes. Anyway, I went on to tell her my pet theory, which is that the world has more cruel, arbitrary rules than the church. I said, for one, you can't wear cargo shorts to school. She said, I could, I just don't want to because they're stupid. I said, okay, but if you wore them to school, people would treat you differently and you would have a different set of friends. So I pointed out that she personally felt the need to meet a very strict code of what to wear or not. And the code required a great expenditure of money and effort. And that if she broke the code, she would lose friends. I said, can you imagine if the church had rules that strict about what we wear every day? You would never go for them, but you do go for them when they're the world's rules. The world even has strict rules about what you must believe, whether it's 
what you believe about COVID or gender or about marriage or abortion or what you believe about evolution or global warming. I'm not saying that the world's wrong about all of these by any means. I'm just saying that the world is very strict about what you're allowed to believe in. And here Jesus is saying that you are not made unclean by what goes in your mouth, but the world doesn't believe that. And worse, it's more arbitrary and more contradictory. So the world attacks you if you smoke tobacco, but smoking marijuana, which is worse for you, is great. In fact, California a few years back raised the smoking age because smoking kills you and simultaneously made it legal to commit suicide with a doctor, which also kills you. The world says practically all female entertainers must be beautiful and perform nearly naked in their popular performances. And that they also must all blame others for body shaming and for not empowering women enough. We live in a world where you're bad if you don't sort your trash, but if you use oral contraceptive pills and thus flush hormones into rivers, which piles of studies have shown are actively deforming fish right now, well, that's just fine. Entertainment companies make millions from slick, high-tech presentations of gun violence and then complain, there was an open letter recently complaining, that there is too much gun violence in the world and that guns should be limited. Maybe they're right, but maybe they shouldn't be presenting gun violence in such a tantalizing way. We force people to buy car seats in order to save children. They have to show the car seats before they can get their baby from the hospital. But the same hospitals are forcing taxpayers to pay for abortions to kill children. Anyway, I told my daughter all this and she rolled her eyes and said, nice rant. And I said, the cult of the world demands these kind of external observances all the time and we most often just give them. So where does all this lead? Right back to where we started. Jesus wants to unite himself with us and so become bread for us to conform our hearts to his. When we despair that we can't live up to what Jesus is asking, we are getting it wrong. He's not asking us to become some strange new thing. He's asking us to more fully be who we already are. And the tendency in the church all my adult life has been to not do that, but to spend time spelling out who's wrong about what and who's right about what. Some of us point to the inadequacy of the left. Others point to the inadequacy of the right. Some of us, me for instance, complain about both. And others complain about people who complain about both. So I've been each of these people actually. Catholics need to stop circling the wagons and firing inward. We have people dying deaths of despair on our blocks. And the most pressing priority we feel is to point out whether this Pope or that Bishop was right or wrong about this rule or that rule. Now, I don't think there's no place for that. I just don't think there's a very big place for that. In a world where we all have an international forum, potentially through social media, it seems that there's less place for constant criticism about the church. It should be a very unusual thing for a Catholic to stand up before an international audience and denounce the Pope or a fellow Catholic or anyone for that matter. But international denunciations seem to be the chosen faith profession of most public Catholics. I think we get too caught up in a culture war and stop focusing on Jesus. 
We're all part of the culture and we've all caved to greater or lesser degree. What is needed is more following of Jesus and serving our neighbor. That's where a new culture will flower. We're all like Peter stepping out of the boat, looking at the waves. Catholics expend a lot of energy calculating the heights of waves. The waves of secularism, liberalism, conservatism, Phariseeism, thisism and thatism. Instead, I want to keep my eyes on Jesus and let him answer my questions. If my neighbor looks like an enemy, if my neighbor looks like a wave that I need to flee from, then I'm going to sink. If my neighbor looks like Jesus in a distressing guise, then I will go forward. Remember what I quoted from Mark at the very beginning of this episode. Immediately the people recognized Jesus and ran about the whole neighborhood and began to bring sick people on their pallets to any place where they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or country, they laid the sick in the marketplace and besought him that they might touch even the fringes of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. The human-sized stories that we make out of our own rules and our own wisdom limit what Jesus can do and will ultimately always cause us to despair. But amazing things will happen if we allow Jesus to be what attracts and allow Jesus to be the one who heals. Because we can only ultimately trust in Jesus Christ and his extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Help us tell others about The Extraordinary Story. Visit us at benedictine.edu.